You're listening to Noise Extra. I'm Gray Holger, here with my co-host Tara Connolly. Hello. And Mike Connolly. Hello. And our guest today, Chad Davis of Subclinic. Hey, Chad. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. You know, we like to get into the death industrial zone come October. I mean, all the time, really. <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, it just seems especially fitting this time of year. And Chad's been doing subclinic for 26 years now. Is that right? Yeah, it started, uh, started around the winter of 1994, beginning in 1995-ish, somewhere around there, if memory serves correct, which generally doesn't, but I'm pretty sure it was winter of, winter of 94 was the, was the, the idea, and then selling stuff to get, get up some cash to buy gear, you know? And what what led you to even having the idea? What were you listening to? What was your world at that time? Um, at that point, that was around like my mom and my dad and, and my grandmother had all been sick for many years. Basically, the idea of so I mean, I was listening to stuff like you know when I was seventeen years old, I went into a uh, into a record store in Valdez, North Carolina, and found uh, the corpse's catatonic necrophile tape, you know, and that was like my first introduction into that, you know, that thing, you know, so like, I went from having hair down to the middle of my knees to, or down the middle of my thighs to like, waking up one morning and being like, fuck this, shave my head, you know, I've been like this ever since, completely changed my world, you know, and then like, uh, even a few days after that, about uh, psychic TV allegory itself. You know, and I was just kind of like, all right, well, this is not Hanoi Rocks, so this is pretty great. Uh, of which I still love it. This band's fantastic. But <laughs> yeah, and then like my parents got sick. Basically, I lost my mom, my grandmother, and my dad all within about the span of three months. Uh, my mom and my grandmother the same day while I was standing with them. So kind of like self, like not even really dealing with the idea of that, you know, just being like, oh, well, you know, fuck, that just happened. So Subclinic was basically started just as therapy for myself because as as i began to process it you know just hate and more hate and more hate you know i've never been a very social person i've always been kind of like you know socially non-existent and i kind of realized that like i needed some sort of output for this negativity because if i didn't i'd wind up in prison or dead one of the two so you know subclinic just kind of became like what i was hearing in my head i was like well there's got to be some way that i can you know i can translate you know what i'm what i like these sounds and just these things that i see in my head into sound and hence, you know, the very first subclinic tape, which kind of really sucked, you know, which is why I redid it uh, a couple of years ago. Still had basically the same ideas, but, you know, uh, just better gear. But they made that tape and then I recorded the the seven inch that came out on Waggletone. And, you know, the guy at, at uh, Play It Again, where I got those tapes from, uh, he put it out on his label, you know, and that was pretty much just the beginning of it. And just realizing that I could like take that negativity and turn it into something that's just as equally negative and still feel good about it was like, all right, cool. You know, hence the reason why Subclinic has remained the only one constant thing that I've ever done. So, And that seven inch is fantastic. Now the, your relationship with the subject of death and the theme of death Mm. Was that, did that spawn from the, this three months of your of family members passing away? Or was this something before that, that was with you? Um, I mean, I've always been into like, I've always been into the world of the esoterics ever since. Like, uh, I think it was maybe fifth grade, this dude, Chad Michaels came in and he had a Gavin and Yvonne's Frost uh, book of witchcraft. And I just kind of saw it and I was like, well, this kind of looks like the monsters. Yeah, that's cool. You know, I kind of always loved horror movies. Me and my dad always sat around and watched horror movies on the weekends, you know, when I didn't go to school. And then, like, I guess when me and one of my best friends from back home, we kind of discovered Bathory and Venom about the same time, uh, shortly after getting kind of bored with, like, misfits and stuff like that. The world of the macabre has always been there. And, like, the idea of just, like, not existing one day has always been kind of like an obsession I guess the idea and the interest of passing has always been really great in my life. Um, but it really took that happening to be like, I have to be obsessed with this because like just literally going from, you know, telling my mom that like my grandmother had just passed away, not even five minutes 
because they were in like adjoining ICU rooms going into the room and being like, well, you know, uh, Mama Ann decided to go on and pass over to the other side and mom just flatlined like that. Like that, like just going from existing to not within the span of just like saying words was, you know, while it sucked, you know, it was very like intriguing. And it's something that has been the through line from day one on all of subclinics Mm -hmm. work. Yes. Yes. Always will be. My obsession with death is just as great as my obsession for life. Can't have one without the other. It's true. And I feel that finding that corpse's catatonic tape, what a, I mean, for that to be one of the first things that sent mm-hmm. you in this path, an, an absolute classic yep. and something you just, it was, it truly was the, you know, the beginning in a way mm-hmm. for, I mean, I got, a, I got the subclinic name from the front of that tape, subclinical, you know, cause like I figured if I was going to do something, if I was going to, if I was going to let this music, obsessed my life that I needed to pay homage from whence I got the, uh, where, where I heard, you know, the initial thing, like, like shortly after that, I heard like less more to heresy. And I thought, you know, this is, this is okay. It's not dark enough. It's not like this isn't, this isn't darkness. And it's funny because me and Brian, uh, Brian Williams kind of got in an argument over my space a long time ago about that. Uh, he felt my view was kind of wrong, but I don't know. I still, this shit ain't nowhere near as dark as that, but you know, I, I just looked, I saw it and I was like, ah, oh, subclinic. That's, yeah, that'll work. And I read in an interview from a few years ago, a, a couple other projects that you were familiar with early on were Haters and mm-hmm. as well as Allegory Chapel. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So pretty wide range there, you know, from the Haters, mm-hmm. Allegory, Corpses, Catatonic, but there is also some sort of connection in a way. When did you come to Haters and Allegory? Uh, not too long after that. One of my girlfriends at the time, she went up to Dave's store to try and find something for my birthday. And uh, <laughs> Dave being Dave, he uh, he was like, oh, well, he'll probably like this. And it was the haters predetermined by accident for tape box set. Whoa. Uh, whoa. Wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like she just kind of handed that to me one day. She's like, I don't even know what this is, but you'll probably like it. And I just started listening to it. And I was like, man, this is this is really great. And then uh, probably about a month after that actually had found a job and went up and found uh, allegory chapel uh, parable from the garden of thorns tape. And it was just like, man, just like, this is, this is like a completely, totally different world, you know? Cause like at that point I was like venom, Bathory, merciful fate, Hanoi rocks, uh, Geisha King diamonds, you know, uh, which all had like, you know, the latter three all had some kind of like weird circular, uh, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for is they all had something in common, you know, they started sharing members, but, um, I just kind of realized that like music didn't have to be tonal to be superior, you know, like if you can create sound from feelings and not being like all emo, like, Oh yeah, you know, like, you know, so like finding like a, being able to make a sound that you feel in a vibration in your, in your, and your body seems to be way more spiritual than writing songs about, you know, booze and sex, you know, which is fine if you want to do that. It's kind of boring. You know, I don't, I don't get it. So um, not anymore. I don't get it. You know, I always thought I was when I, when I was a little kid, you know, started playing drums when I was four. You know, I always thought I was going to be the next Tommy Lee because by the time I was like 15 years old, I can play all the Motley Crue records on drums. Um you know, and I was thinking, oh, I'm better than that fucker, you know. But then, like, <laughs> you know, getting that tape, you know, just getting that Corpses Catatonic tape was like, fuck, this is like, this is so much more impactful. And, like, this makes Bathory sound like poison, you know, because it's like earnest. Like, you know, The Return of Darkness and Evil is definitely one of the most evil recordings ever, but put up against um, sensitive, liberated autistics is like, fucking night and day it's like you know you know a couple uh, a couple of drunk metalheads being like oh well we're evil whereas you know zoe dewitt was like this is magic to tape you know it's kind of like just way more intriguing i think that thread of of sort of magic to tape also carries through with the allegory and self psychic tv and the allegory chapel limited yes recordings like that's kind of a, a through thread i think do you find uh sort of ritual practice in your own work or is that a separate thing? No, it's, it's definitely there. Um, you know, my, 
my interest in, in the, the occults used to be kind of like one-sided, you know, and as I've gotten older over the years, I mean, like, you know, you can pretty much, you know, debunk all that shit down to like, you know, it's, you know, without, without hurting feelings. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, it's real if you want it to be, you know, to me, like the occult is more of like a lifelong, like it's a lifestyle. It's not so much, you know, you can be, you can be Aleister Crowley and fuck a goat and slit its throat right before you come, you know, like they used to do in the Abbey of Thelema. But I mean, is that really, are you really getting like a spiritual jolt out of that? Or is it just like blasphemy for the sake of blasphemy? You know, it's kind of like, you know, we can be all as evil as we want, but when it boils down to, you know, everybody wants to eat mac and cheese at dinner time, you know, and, and like enjoy stuff. You know what I mean? Right. So it's kind of, like, it's kind of like if, if your intent is to make music and have it be a show, then it's like meaningless. But if you, if you really live behind what you, what you do, like, you know, like my best friend that we, that I used to listen to, um, to Bathory and Venom with, you know, back in, in, in middle school and grade school, you know, like his parents on the funeral home. So like sneaking into the morgue and like being that place where I heard my first death rattle was like, that was like way more impactful to me rather than, you know, hanging out with a bunch of, you know, a bunch of dudes and be like, Oh, let's get drunk and cut ourselves, you know, it, or, you know, let's, you know, let's get drunk and go knock over a gravestone. That's not, that's like, I don't know shit shit that's real is like you know it's, it's way more impactful it's way more meaningful going back to the ritual practice like to me being able to channel energies and turn it into sound that impacts people's lives is way more magic than trying to shape shift trying to like what was the the, the thing that uh crowley locked himself up in uh and bulliskin trying to do is like that six month ritual the abramelin maybe i think that was is that what it was of which he finally gave up because he couldn't do it you know so it's kind of like pick and choose make everything you know make what you want your life you know make magic from your life and make the product of what you do be the magical result makes sense i don't know absolutely yeah. absolutely makes sense well, on tangent, so i don't know <laughs> no i i totally agree and what you're saying is so intriguing because there are certain artists like like marco corbelli like there is this honesty to that individual that is transcendent because you understand that they are bearing themselves raw and sharing their energy and when you devote so much of that personal energy into a release it does it does feel like truer magic than trying to change your feelings change your intent to please somebody else and speaking of Marco Corbelli, of course, someone that we hold in the highest regard on Noise Extra and is someone you worked with multiple times in the mm -hmm. 90s and early 2000s before his passing. How did you get in touch with Marco and how did that relationship begin? Um, the first time... <sighs> it's a bit foggy, so I'm, I'm trying to remember like exactly what but there was some kind of like, so me and some friends of mine uh, found mail order uh, through a magazine. Uh, and I think it might've been like middle pillar distribution. Maybe I, I, I can't remember if it was them or maybe it was like that half shit thing that relapse did like release records or whatever it was. Um, I think it was released, put out the original uh, sickness report. I, th I think it tracks more sickness report. The first yes. CD. It was either yeah. on relapse release. One of the two. I always I, some, I forget which which CDs have which one on it sometimes, and mm -hmm. I, I can't remember if Sickness Report is release or relapse. Do you remember, Gray? I don't. I, I probably have it sitting right yeah, over there. I can actually <laughs> see the spine from here, but I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but it's like I remember I went into the same record store again because Dave uh, from Play It Again, he used to live here in San Francisco a long, long time ago. He was in Toxic Reasons for a, for a while uh, playing sax. Uh, but he got to be friends with the dudes that did subterranean uh, distribution out here. When he went back home or back to North Carolina, which I call home because that's where I'm from, 
he opened played again in a very small spot. Then he opened it in a, in a big giant old bank dude had everything, but he was the only person that I knew of on the East coast that carried like all the subterranean stuff, you know, like all the band productions, you know, I guess that was part of the, part of the thing, but he got, um, he used to deal with, with relapse and he got the sickness report stuff in, but at the same time, he also got a bunch of the tapes, a bunch of the, um, the Atrax morgue stuff and a lot of the stuff that Slaughter was doing. Cause I guess band productions or, um, I'm sorry, subterranean may have been doing some mail order for Marco. I don't remember hundred percent, but uh, I just remember getting sickness report and just thinking it was like fucking sick. Like it was, it was yeah. minimal, like just a couple sounds and that's it, you know, uh, and I just remember thinking, I was like, okay, well, this is that guy. This is the address. Uh, and I've got a couple of recordings sitting around. This was 1990, the end of 1995, because it was after the seven inch had come out. Um, and I'd already made other stuff that completely didn't sound like the, the seven inch, which was the, the feasting on souls. Um, so I just I put some songs on a tape, wrote Marco a letter, put it in there, sent it to him. It was you know, before I had the internet. So it was, you know, kind of, it was all mail. Um, Cause we didn't get internet in North Carolina until like maybe December of 95, I think, which, you know, helps, uh, you know, contact with Marco, but he actually, he wrote me a, t- he wrote me a letter back um, oh, wow. said he loved it and he wanted to put it out. And I was like, well, fuck, okay. You know, I, so I put the rest of the recordings on a tape, sent it to him. He put out, he put that out and then we got email and it was a lot easier. I remember I tried calling him one time and our phone conversation lasted all of about a minute because he was not first in English at all, you know? <laughs> um, so it, it was, it was, you know, it, it was, it was, it was funny. Um, but we, we kept in contact through writing letters more than email because it just seemed like, you know, we both felt like it was more personable. Um, yeah, there's, I wish I had a lot of those letters, man. There was some wild stuff that he would tell me in letters that, uh, that, uh, really kind of blew my mind about like that whole, like the whole Italian scene and everything. Um, it was really, it was really, I was really saddened whenever, uh, whenever I heard that he had, he had, he had killed himself. So. Oh, yeah. It's still felt to this day. And yeah. you guys both, shared a very deep interest in death. Was this something that you guys would write each other about? He told me in a letter one time that he went to his old house that he grew up in and tried to buy it from the people because uh, he wanted to live there again. And they said no. And it made him very upset. And that was literally the last, that was the last letter that I ever received from him. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I don't, you know, I don't really remember exactly what happened around the, you know, the, the story of his, his death. And I, I think he hung himself or something. I, I don't, I don't really recall. It's just, just sad. Like, you know, I, not surprised by any means whatsoever. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it comes with the territory, I guess, but sad nonetheless. Oh, no question. And, but, you know, thankfully we have his art forever that, so he can, we can, always go back on that and it'll be here for when we're when we're long gone it'll still be here so that's absolutely that's uh that's a great thing mm-hmm. i remember him telling me that he he found comfort in the idea of death because death meant no longer having to deal with like physical pain you know and mental pain as well because like you know you can you know you can burn yourself and you know it's like oh shit that sucks but it, you know mental pain is like the worst you know, it just, it, it's like, like something that hurts your inner core is like, you know, there's, it's, you know, it's not pleasant. And I think that was like, you know, that's, that's one thing that we really share because we didn't, uh, while we didn't really like the idea of mental pain, we knew that it kind of drove our art and the way that we view the world and the way that we wanted to people to hear, you know, thoughts. So, you know, that that obsession of just being able to feel you know feel pain and turn it into something that's you know one would cause pain people listening to it and then you know that what you know people that weren't into it you know i remember playing a show one time and some girl like freaked out and like ran out screaming which was like i guess that was the right you know that's the right reaction but knowing that what we were doing was like having an impact 
you did Cremator and Premonitions of Death as well on Slaughter. How did it, you decide what would be a Slaughter release as opposed to working with another label? Was it just sort of organic that you felt this one would be good for Slaughter? I'll send it to Marco. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a like each recording always had a certain feeling to it. And I felt like all the more ones that were more clinical sounding, like more like, you know, if it's like an industrial sound or if it's just like, you know, like Donna Desecration, I felt like would not have been. It, it that wouldn't have fit Slaughter yeah. as, as much. I, I do agree because yeah. that one yeah. is expansive an mm-hmm. hour long real piece. Yeah. Whereas the slaughter ones are individual tracks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, it just, it, it always had like, a feel like I could tell, like this feels like a slaughter release. This feels like something that slaughter would be into, you know? And while he was into, you know, don't discretion, I sent it to him and he really likes it a lot. You know, um, he never asked to release it. You know, I never asked him to release it, you know? Um, and I think uh, I don't, man. I don't even remember how I got in got in touch with Live Bait. I think maybe maybe Stephen sent me a message, or I, I don't. Just, that part of my life's kind of hazy because I was like pretty heavy on uh, on bills at the time. Uh, and that whole area, that whole point is just kind of like I don't I don't remember having that shit. But you know, once uh, you know, clearing the head and getting things back in in line, um, you know, those times were a bit a bit better. Um, but yeah, just sending stuff to him and be like, Hey man, you like this? You know, him sending a letter back. Yes. You know, like a lot of the letters to get back, it's just like a couple lines, you know, he probably just had somebody there that was like, you know, Oh yeah, that's right. In English, you know, send it on back, you know? Um, but yeah, and he did the, he did the torture. He did the first torture side release too. Um, that one I just sent for him, you know, just sent it to him like, like, Hey, here's something for you to listen to, you know, hope you like it. And literally like two months later, I get a box of, Torture side in the mail. You know, I'm like, oh, okay, well, cool. I didn't intend it to be that, but hell yeah, that's cool. So I guess he liked it a lot. <laughs> and you mentioned uh, Livebait, uh, our friend Stephen Petrus, of course. Uh, who else were you in contact with in the 90s? Not a, not a whole lot of people. Uh, so it was uh, that John dude from uh, from Bayall, uh, Ava ES3, that did the Abominari um, triple CD thing. Uh, somehow I got in touch with him through MySpace, I think. Um, well, in the, in the nineties, not really anybody like, um, I was playing in demon sea at the time, became a member of profane grace. Uh, cause Rob, uh, Rob Cruz on main guy from all that stuff. He lived in, uh, uh, Silva, North Carolina, which was about an hour and a half from me up in the mountains. Um, and our buddy, Jesse from Georgia got Robert into Sun Clinic because he somehow found a, a, a seven inch down at Wax and Facts in Georgia and bought it and told Rob that we should get in contact. So we did. Um, but I didn't really, I mean, I wasn't very, like I said, you know, I wasn't very sociable. So I didn't really, you know, I had people that I talked to on the, in the MySpace days, um, but never like sent emails to people or never really did anything. I mean, it's North Carolina, not a whole lot of people know anybody from North Carolina. So it's kind of like, it's, it's a reclusive area. Me and Rob, I think we're like the only two, you know, that we knew of that was doing stuff like that in, in the state. But I think a lot of it just came from having like songs on MySpace and, and other like-minded artists or labels finding, you know, finding the stuff and be like, Oh hell yeah, that's cool. Um, I really am at a loss for memory of how I got in touch with Stephen Peters. I don't, I don't even, I don't remember that. Yeah. He's such a supporter. I could see him. Yeah. He he probably reached out. We, we love Stephen. Probably. probably yeah. Steve. I mean, I, could be that I approached them. It could be that he approached me. I just, I, I don't remember. <laughs> I wish I did. And those times, were you playing shows or trying to tour? Um, we played the very first, very first Sun Clinic show that ever happened was me and a group of other dudes that I knew in, in my town, um, all three of which are no longer alive. But it was literally like, like the people in Hickory didn't really know how to take the difference is like, you know, the area that I came from, it's all like jacked up trucks and country music, which is mm-hmm. fine. That's what they want to do. It's cool. You know, I like riding jacked up trucks. I like Towns Van Zandt, but you know, other than that, I don't really have a use for that music, but uh, like the whole, the whole idea of different people in that area at that time was like taboo. You know, it's it like, you know, nobody is different. You know, we were like the only dudes walking around in like black leathers and leather pants and 
having like a, you know, Mark used to carry around a, a jam box, like blasting hip music and uh, Hater and Merzbow and stuff, you know, and that's just <laughs> like walking around. Cause like, there was like a, like a goth scene, I guess, like a punk scene, like, a, you know, the alt kids used to hang out at the Hickory Square, but they were more like skater dudes, you know, people that were into like exploited and septic death misfits, stuff like that. And then you had uh, like the people that would host like Peter Murphy birthday parties, you know, cause there was nothing else to do in Hickory. Um, mm-hmm. But then you had us, which we were like, you know, we were like the people that the punks didn't want to hang out with, you know, because we were like the extreme, you know, we were like those people, you know, even the punk people were like, those dudes are crazy. You know, they're like, well, well no, I was going to say, I feel like your crew would be like the scene in the 1983 movie suburbia where the punks are walking up the suburban street. Yeah. I would be 10 times more excited for your crew walking up, <laughs> blasting yeah. haters and yeah. Merzbow. I think there's yep. my crew right there. Yep. Way more exciting than the uh, yep. punks yep. walking that's Exactly. That's, that's how it was. You know, it was like, it was, there was only like a group of maybe six, seven, eight of us, you know, and we all knew each other for a while. Um, you know, Mark, I met at, um, at that record store play it again and he was like you know he and nick they were both like kids and you know uh, they were looking for something new and didn't know what to listen to and i suggested to mark uh because dave had another copy of allegory himself i was like how about this and christian death only theater of pain and so he bought those and we became instant friends you know that was Perfect. like that's pretty much you know that's how we got to know each other but we thought well, you know, it would be funny because we always watched like the haters live things. We were like, how about, why don't we do something like this? And why don't we call it subclinic? So we literally got like all this scrap metal, all this glass, all these barrels and went out to the alleyway of a place called um, uh, the tap room, which was the big bar in the area. But there was a nice little alleyway with a little little cubby in it. Um, and I remember we, we set up everything and we had a video camera and we were just going to film it for us just to have it just as, cause it was like the first action that we ever did. Um, but then like all these people started walking up, you know, and it got to be like, there was like probably 40 people standing out there. Um, and I remember it was funny as shit. Cause I was like, we were all beating on stuff and Mark had this big long bat, but he had a completely like black hood over his face. Didn't have eyes in it. So he couldn't see, but Nick like walked in front of him and Mark like, fucking cracked him in the head with the bat <laughs> on the ground. But then these cops pulled up and were just kind of like, what are you guys doing? And they were like, well, we're, you know, we're just recording art, you know, cause we didn't really know much, what else to say, you know, we were just having fun. And they're like, do you have a permit? I'm like, do we need one? And they're like, well, I don't guess. So as they were driving off, they like turned on some kind of weird ass like siren thing that was like really noisy. Um, and then we continued and, Nobody, like, none of the people in the crowd said anything. They just walked away, and we cleaned up and left. Um, so that was, like, technically the first subclinic wow. thing. That sounds but, incredible. Yeah, but uh, the show that's coming up um, here in the, in San Francisco in, in October, this is probably only going to be, like, maybe the 14th performance of subclinic ever. Like, because I don't... I don't it's really hard for me to to feel like that I get the idea and like the feeling of, of some clinic across live. It's it's very it's more of like personable being able to like work with the gear rather than stand in front of a whole bunch of people and like feel like I'm doing the same thing, you know. So um I love playing out with some clinic and I think it's fun. It's just really it's different. You know, I, I don't feel like sometimes it comes off uh Tormanda's flesh that I played in Portland uh, a couple years ago. I think that's like the only subclinic show that I've ever played that I felt like it really happened because the sound system was awesome and the low end was just crushing. So like being able to feel like that music was not only oppressing me, but everybody else around it um, felt like a triumph, I guess, you know, but I'm really excited about the show. You know, I like, I like doing it. I just, you know, I don't ever feel like it comes out right. So I just don't do it a lot. You know? Right. And do you still play live drums frequently? No, no, I haven't. Uh, I just do drums for whenever I'm whenever I'm doing like the hour 13 stuff or any of the the other like metal based stuff that I do. Um, and I think the last time that I played drums in a in an actual band, probably 2000, 2005, I guess, 2005, oh, 2006, somewhere around there. So it's, it's been a while. Yeah. yeah. You know, drums are always going to be like it's what got me started in this in this whole entire thing. I don't know. It just doesn't swing me as much as it used to. 
And I love hearing you talk about the pockets of strangeness in the South. I, I grew up mostly in Kentucky, South Carolina, and, oh, yeah. and it, and it's such a different experience than Mike had when he found people with similar interests, because it's almost like you don't expect anybody to share your interests. So it's a very personal kind of isolated experience. And when you find somebody else, um, it's, it's a, it's a treat to make a little weirdo pocket, uh, in the South. And they're always strange. <laughs> we Not played Barnes, Barnes a lot, a lot of Barnes. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We played, um, I think one of the weirdest shows that I ever played back in those days, um, not a, not a subclinic. Uh, well, when subclinic was going on, I also had an old kind of like a grindcore sludge band called seven foot spleen. And we did a couple tours with grief. Um, um, and we played, there was a band from Virginia called germ flux and their guitar player, his parents were like, I mean, when you think of like rich people, you think like rich people that are driving like Porsches and stuff. But I mean, these dudes were like, I don't know. It, 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 they bought a plantation and they bought this whole plantation mm -hmm. in Virginia. It was like a mansion that had 14 sub houses around it. So it was just yes. this giant, like small town. And we wound up playing a show in one of those, uh, one of those, one of those little houses. It was like a slave quarters that had been turned into like uh, there were there were recording slash rehearsal slash you know unofficial bar. And they always wanted me to come up and do a subclinic show there because they felt like it would be very fitting because the whole area was just like it was gloomy. Like you got on, you got into that area, and it was just like instant depression. Like you're walking into this place of history where so many people died. So many people were just worked to death. And it's like, it wasn't a happy place. It was a great show that we played, but it was just, it wasn't a very happy place. And I kind of, I kind of, I don't regret many things, but I kind of regret not ever going up and doing a show there because I would have been interested to feel what it would have been like to be able to kind of like connect my sounds of death with like the actual act of, you know, so. And do you set uh, an atmosphere or intention in your studio when you're recording? Is there something you do to sort of prepare for your recording sessions? Not really. I, I feel like it's already, it's so omnipresent at all times. It's just here. Like, you know, what, you know, I'll be sitting downstairs, like hanging out with the kid uh, and my lady and I'll just get like a sound in my head and I just get up and I come up here and just start like, um, you know, two days ago I got a new piece of gear and I was sitting down. Well, a piece of gear that I've had like five different times in a cell every time I get finished using it, but um, got another one, came up here, made a sound. And, you know, as of yesterday, I just finished the newer subclinic album. So yeah, it's like four songs in 30 minutes, you know? So that's kind of generally how it happens. Like it gets started. And then once it gets started, it just, you know, over the span of like a day or two, it's, it's done, you know? Um, I used to, I used to like, I used to do like some form of meditating, but meditating to me never really did much other than just kind of like make me feel like I was wasting time. So I just kind of stopped doing that and would just like rely on what, what my head was, was telling me to do, you know, or what, what my, you know, what my mind was hearing, you know, over the tinnitus, I guess. Um, oh yeah. 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 So, you know, in a sense, I mean, it's already, you know, I'm already so obsessed with all this shit that it just, it just happens. So, you know, setting, setting the mood is just like, you know, realizing that I am the mood, you know, that my, my inner self is the mood. So it's just kind of like, it just, I just do it. Yeah. And it, and it seems like you've been very productive in the past few years. Mm -hmm. Do you feel a, have you felt a recent urge to, record a lot and release a lot like you said did you just finished a, a, a new album and a new album mm -hmm. new tape was just came out a, a month or two ago if i'm not mistaken yeah um whenever the whenever um when the when the questions were sent to me to kind of like look over as kind of like um um a as little a, pre, our pretty questions just to get the yeah, brain yeah, yeah. Moving. yeah there was a there was something that that asked that same thing and i kind of like i kind of correlate it to so when my mom died she was 50 when my dad died he was 53 and i'm 49 i'll be 50 in january so i kind of feel like with these ages coming up it kind of makes me question my own mortality 
I guess maybe either it's like a subconscious thing of like, you know, my mind is just like telling me to get shit done, you know, as opposed to like, oh, you got fucking plenty of time, you know, don't worry about it today. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like. I, absolutely. I, mm-hmm. I've yeah. spoken with some o- older musicians and, and they've said absolutely similar thing that the as the years go on, you feel, hey, what am I waiting for? Mm-hmm. This is not infinite. This is finite. Yeah. So yep. why postpone? Why put anything off? Let's mm-hmm. just do this. And yep. yeah, because I feel it was neuroschism was the most recent thing. Yeah, that it is. Fantastic. Now, who's who's doing the the upcoming? release you don't know yet i don't even know i just uh, i sent uh, i sent both marcus um and alex from deathbed um two of the you know two of the newer tracks before i ever finished the other four or the other two uh because it's, it's like another four four track thing um i mean they both like it i mean i don't i don't know i know they both have a lot of stuff going on so you know being that alex just you know reissued um of bones and death and uh, dissection program and Marcus just did the uh, exhaust tape and neuroschism. I kind of probably just going to hold off a bit and because you know, I don't really. There's other cats that have hit me up about about inter- or about releases, um, and I feel bad that I've never gotten them anything. Uh, this is I'm be flat honest with you. Sometimes I just fucking forget. Like I don't. I don't. I've got so much shit that goes on. Like I don't. You know, sometimes I feel like I need like a bookkeeper or like, a, you know, I need to like invest in something other than like, a, I mean, I've got a phone, I guess I could put everything into, but I would never look at it. So um, it's just kind of like remembering. And but and I think maybe once again, it might just be that like, I'm kind of like, you know, I don't like hopping around to a lot of things because it doesn't make me feel like I'm being like, I feel like my loyalty would be like kind of misplaced to like just a whole bunch of other scenarios i guess you know and i don't like you know i don't like uh i don't like upsetting people but sometimes people like with the metal stuff you know there's like an accept there's like an expectation of getting stuff done you know and i and i think the one reason why it took me seven years or eight years basically to get the or well, seven years to get the newest hour 13 record done is because i was always getting hounded hey when's the record coming when's the record coming when's the record coming every time i hear that i'm like it'll be done when it's done you know fuck off uh, i'll do it when i get it you know and I hate being like that, but I'm Capricorn and I, got, I can't really, you know, I don't, uh, you know, fuck it, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> you know what well, I mean? You've, been, you've also been releasing stuff on your own, correct? Yeah, yeah, I did the, I did the, um, the Molest Death tape. Um, that was just fucking nightmare. Like those tapes came out, they sound great, but God, the fucking quality of that stuff was just garbage. And like, I don't, I'm so like, sometimes with stuff like that, I just get really like, I get impatient. You know, it's, it's like it's not that I think that everything should be done in a timely manner, but maybe if I didn't deal with a, a pressing plant in Russia, it would have taken six months to get a tape done. You know, but then That's like the getting, thing. yeah, and it's like getting to getting them back and being like, oh yeah, it's like covers like great, opened up the fucking labels on the tapes are all like crooked and shit. I'm just like garbage. You know, Jason Mantis from uh, Malignant was like, oh yeah, I totally, I totally back up that company, which I'm not going to name, but. He's like, I use them all the time for CDs. I'm like, I guess he doesn't use them for tapes because we did them with tapes. Like, shit. <laughs> so I don't know. And, you know, but if I, I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, like corporation, I guess I'm still doing like all the lathe cuts, um, you know, but those are kind of expensive to do, you know, and I really hate like making, I hate having to charge people like, you know, it's like basically those things get, get, cut for like 35 bucks that I pay a piece and then I sell them for 30. Cause I just, I can't, I can't even, I can't be like, well, here's, here's a 40, you know, here's, here's a $50 lease, you know, you know, it might be worth it to some people, but I don't, I don't, you know, I don't, it feels like a ripoff to me, but we, we talk about the, the day you receive a box of a new release is the exhilaration slash dread of opening the box. Yeah, uh, is, sometimes is you just don't even want to see what's inside. And you're just please let it be what I what I made, and yeah. man, it's it feels more and more these days that the dread is real. 
Yeah, it's weird, man. It's like it's like seeing the quality of stuff that got made back in the day as opposed to the shit that gets printed now. And it's kind of like, when did manufacturing processes change that much to where you're paying for less? You know what I mean? Like even yes. like like record like like uh, like LP covers, like the the cardstock that they use now is just like. Yeah, sure. It's thick. I mean, it's nice and printed, but you got all these like little dots along the sides where they're like perforated. You never saw that mm-hmm. shit on like back in the never. day. Mm-hmm. You know, everything was nice and clean, and you know, I don't know. Fuck it. <laughs> Ducks. <laughs> I know, yes. right? Yes. Yeah. So, this up. When is the upcoming gig in San Francisco? Uh, October 22nd and 23rd. Uh, um, Ruinous, Ruinous Resound is the name of the... I'm, yeah, yeah. yeah. It looks like it, I remember seeing the, the advert for it. And it's like, damn, I never know that these things are going on and I live here. You know, it's like, never know this stuff's going on. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, a couple of the, the Eurobands had to cancel and dude reached out. So that's, that's cool. You know, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't say no, I'm right here. I'd have felt like a dick if I'd be like, oh, no, nah, man, you know, it's too much passing. When, when did you <laughs> relocate to San Francisco from North Carolina? 2014, I played a show with the psych band I was in at the time and met my lady Trista uh, at that show. And then later on in that year, I uh, started going to Richmond, hanging out, meeting everybody up there and realizing that I had friends up there. Then wound up selling my house in North Carolina in 2014 and moved to Richmond. I was there almost two years. Uh, then we came out here in 2016. Oh, so it's pretty oh, recent. recent. Yeah. Yeah, 2016. Yeah, I haven't been here. It's five years, I guess. It's six years. Five, five years. Yeah. And you're going to be playing with Allegory Chapel uh, at yes. that ruinous resound. Yeah, which is awesome. Uh, Eldon and I, I, I sent uh, I sent Eldon uh, the the cremator of Bones and Death uh, LP, and he played it on his radio show in, in its entirety, like just a couple of days after that. Uh, we've been in touch, you know, pretty much ever since. We uh, we're supposed to do a project together. Uh, it hasn't materialized yet uh, because of my stupid seclusion shit. Yeah, you know, sometimes you know I just I kind of fall off the radar a little bit. Um, but yeah, I saw that he was on that show and I'm like, well, I've got to go to the show. And then bands dropped off, uh, and dude asked me and I'm like, I can't, I can't say no. I feel weird that I'm playing after him because I mean, he's like, you know, allegory chapel is one of the things that helped me get into this, you know? And so it's kind of like, uh, the first hour 13 show was in Ireland and we co we, we headlined over pagan altar, which is like one of the main reasons that got me into that kind of music. And I remember Absolutely. Terry telling Terry Jones, I'm like, dude, sorry, I don't want to do this. And he's like, ah, it's not you, it's not your fault, mate. You know, I'm like, well, you know, why don't you guys just play after us, please? And so they did. But uh, originally it was supposed to have been them playing, them like opening up for us. And I was just like, nah, can't do that. You know, I would much rather do that with this show, but you know, I'm gonna make the suggestion because I just I it's gonna make it's gonna be weird me having to like, you know, I, I know there's not like you know, in shows like these, it's not about like who plays first, second, last, whatever. But I just, it just feels weird because Eldon was like a really big inspiration. That music was a big inspiration on me back in the day, you know? So, oh, yeah. We, so, yeah, we love Eldon. Yeah. Yeah. Never met him. I've talked to him plenty of times. Oh, never, really? Yeah. yeah never met him. Hey, he's great. Saw him uh, like a week ago. Actually, I was listening to Carbon 14 earlier today before we started this mm-hmm. uh, interview. So, yeah. He sent me that, uh, he sent me that recent, uh, that reissue. Because uh, I remember buying that tape from Dave Store, of course, um, and just wore it, just played it till it wore out and could never find it again, you know. And then he's like, oh, yeah, this is getting reissued. And he's like, I'll send you one. And I'm like, oh, that's fucking crazy. Cool. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, Eldon has a wide variety of topics he can talk about. It's great. <laughs> so it I'm seems like a Play It Again was a pretty big source of finding music for you and, and uh, also, of course, releasing the seven inch on the label waggle tone, which was one of the employees there, the owner. Yep. Yeah, uh, yeah. You also mentioned sort of uh, selling stuff to get up money to buy gear. When you first started out, what did you start out using? What was the sub clinic gear to make the, the first tape and the seven inch stuff? Uh, the first sub clinic seven, or the, the first tape was um, uh, a four track that only recorded on two tracks because uh, my buddy had pretty much thrashed the shit out of it. He trying to like record some kind of punk rock stuff and wound up dropping it. He dropped his guitar on it and it fucked up the, the back tracks three and four. So he's like, here, just, you know, he, I don't even want this anymore. Just take it. And I'm like, oh, okay. So uh, let's see. His first was uh, distortion pedals, cellophane, 
uh, some aluminum foil, contact mic, and that tape and that that uh, that four slash two track recorder. Um, I mean, it was cool for what it, what it was, but I just remember listening to it and I was like, yeah, this is kind of, I mean, it sounds like the chaos that I'm, you know, it, it sounds like, you know, what I want to do, but it's just, it's a little different. Um, I think there's some f- copies of that floating around somewhere. I, I, don't, I don't, I don't have it anymore. Um, but then for the seven inch, uh, my cousin Chris was going, was moving uh, and he had a Juno 106. Uh, and he's like, yeah, I'm not using this thing anymore. You can have it if you want it. I'm like, all right, I'll take it. Um, so the seven inch was that Juno 106, a microphone and an Alesis Midiverb 4 um, or Microverb 4. Um, and that was it. That's all I used. That's all I used on that seven inch. And to me, that that was like, that was what I was looking for. You know, even though I like the chaos of, you know, just the, you know, just noise and just the, just the harshness of that first tape. Um, definitely. It definitely, you know, captured the chaos, but it didn't capture the hurt, you know, and to me, the seven inch is really what, like, you know, it, to me, it was like representative of a machine just fucking grinding my soul, like just grinding me over and over and over, you know, um, kind of stuck. And was that the same sort of setup that progressed to Feasting on Souls and, and Cremator? Yeah, uh, Feasting on Souls was a mixture of that set. Um, more, uh, there's another, there was some other kind of synthesizer, some like analog, little analog thingy that I got. I think maybe like one of those realistic, uh, the Moog MG1 realistics. Um, I hated that thing. It's, it's just so thin sounding, but I, figured out how to layer two things and then just bounce, you know, this is all before I like started recording. Like, you know, my output was, you know, if, if, if our band was going to record someplace, you know, Seven Foot Spleen was going to record, we'd go to a studio, you know, cause I didn't have any of that shit. Like I, like I do now, uh, or like I did just a few years after that. Um, but yeah, it was, it was that, uh, it was those two synthesizers, um, more found sounds, uh, recording traffic and just filtering it until it was, nothing but a, a quiet rumble um just using found sounds to kind of like you know shape rather than oscillators um but cremator like the main cremator track was so in my living room in north carolina in my old house that had a our fireplace with stove um so build a fire uh the only heat downstairs was the blower from the the stove. Once it got to a certain temperature, the 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 fan would kick on and blow the heat out. So there was a microphone on the fan motor, um, microphone with me with the MIDI Verb Four, and then a microphone in front of the fire and the doors. So like when you hear those the creaking, that's like me opening the door and closing the door. Um, probably one of the most, probably the most organic track that I've ever recorded. Like it's one of my favorites. Um, you know, it's like, I remember uh, an ex-wife of mine, I played it for her and she was like, this sounds like souls being incinerated. I'm like, well, that's the whole point, you know? So, <laughs> and actually those, yeah. those two releases, uh, they share some tracks Were those reworkings or, or just sort of a reissue and placing them, you know, Carry, uh, that was Mark, yeah, that was Marco's doing. He he took the songs that he liked the best off of Feasting and put it on the CD version of Cremator because uh, he felt like those songs needed to be uh, widely available again. You know, and I was kind of like, you know, that's cool. You know, I mean, I didn't I didn't question his his. You know, I was grateful that you know he was doing the releases. You know, it was whatever he wanted to do. You know, and I didn't have any problem with it. Um, Feasting isn't exactly like my favorite recordings because I, I feel like some of those could have been a bit more powerful and uh being not knowing really what i was doing in the engineering part like there's a lot of hiss on some of those things but i just couldn't get like signal to noise ratio uh for the line levels going in right but the atmosphere of the music was still on it so you know that's why the releases happened um but yeah, it's just Marco wanting to wanting to have a little more time on the on the disc, you know, because if people, a lot of people were buying from the states over there, so I mean, I kind of feel like you know, if he's trying to, you know, if he's having to charge, you know, a certain amount for a CD and then plus postage from Italy to the U.S. or Italy to anywhere else, you know, I get it, you know, kind of you want a little more bang for your buck or whatever. 
I remember the prices in the slaughter catalog back then were in uh were in lira. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yep. Uh, Feasting on Souls was the first thing I heard by you, and I still have my copy today. It's got it's the one of the I guess limited ones with the forceps and cotton in it in the, the VHS box and comes with a really nice nice booklet and stuff too. Where do you source the imagery for your releases? Uh, uh, Marco put that one together, so that's all. That was all his all his doings. Like he, uh, I just sent him the tapes, and he sent me back what what came. Uh, does does the cotton on yours have blood on it? I don't believe so. Because there's a couple there's a couple there's a couple of versions of that that uh, like whenever you move the forceps and you turn the cotton over, like there was some blood on on some of the cotton. Um, one of the ones that he sent me, or one that he sent me, had that on there. And I can't remember. Uh, I, I don't even know where, where that went. I think Marcus. I think Marcus bought that for me. But maybe he has it, but I don't. I don't remember if that was the copy or not that uh, that had the blood on it. I love skulls. And I love any. I love anything that has to do with like human remains. You know, like so. It's basically just finding images and being like, okay, well, hopefully this is uh, public domain. You know, and I used to collect lots of bones and skulls too. So I'd kind of like set up things and and take you know take photos of it because it you know kind of made it look like it. Um, sold a lot of that shit whenever I came out here because I didn't really want to drive across the United States with a carload of fucking human remains. Yeah. No, about like I get stopped in truck and then you know like Texas or something to be like, well, fuck. So, yeah. <laughs> but uh, maybe one day I'll have all that stuff back. <laughs> so you, you seem to sell through a lot of things that you use. I do. Uh, one of the main reasons is it's like if I, if I if I record. I don't, I don't want everything like the subclinic stuff is never going to be like, you know, it's, it's not like, you know, everybody should expect progression on every release. Because to me, like, if you're trying to convey an idea and a track comes through, what does it matter if it sounds in the vein of an older release? You know, it's, you know, consistency to me is better than progress, you know, um, progression can have its limitations and problems other than just wanting to be a consistent artist, you know, like I, I grow and I learn about synthesis every day, you know, cause I deal with it because I deal in it all the time. Um, but like sometimes when, if I get a piece of gear and I know that there's only so much that I can do with it, like I'll use it on a recording and I'll, I'll get rid of it, you know, more times than others, I will find it again and be like, Oh, well, you know, maybe I didn't, uh, you know, maybe I didn't exhaust it of all of its possibilities. And then I record another record with it. And then it's like, okay, well, this is done. You know, like Arturia Micro Freak, I've owned five times. You know, every time I, the last time I used it was on the Exaza recording. Uh, this time a guy uh, had one that he said was malfunctioning, got it for a hundred bucks. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. Uh, and it's mostly the whole new subclinic record along with uh, the Arturia Matrix Brute. Let me see if I can get this in there, you guys. That's everything behind me, right? Oh wow, we're getting a great look at the studio right now, and it looks fantastic. Gray's gonna have to wipe the drool off his microphone. Yeah, that looks (laughs) great. The the Matrix Brute was given to me by a guy that I sell gear to. Um, He was going out of going out of the country for six months, and he's like, "Yeah, he's like, I don't have any room for this. The guy that I'm programming for only uses additive synthesis, so." If you want this, you can have it. The only stipulation is whenever I get back, if you want to keep it, you keep it. If you don't want it, then give it back to me. Like, okay, cool. So That's now I don't have to fair very deal. fair. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I love that. And then the, the four track was was uh given to me by um somebody at my work. Um said it didn't work, it works fine. So it's, it's funny because I've got like yeah, I've got all this other um, all this other stuff on this side over here, like a you know thirty two channel mixing console, digital recorders, and everything. And the whole new record was recorded on that four track. Understandable, it's because yeah, yeah, it just it has like it has that sound, you know. It's and I still found, you can't. You know, I don't know if you guys have ever seen these tapes, but they are Maxell uh, communicator series. Yeah, I these used to use those exclusively sound. in four tracks. Amazing. I found uh, there was somebody on eBay that was selling uh, three boxes of the C60s. So I bought them. It was like 30 bucks for boxes. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So I was like, all right, cool. Yeah. That's but, funny. Yeah. It's oh, going to be really hard for perfect. me to go back to all this shit over here. So. <laughs> all of my uh, all of my old bands 
it's amazing. I can't believe like, you know, for, for a unit this old and for it to be just as tattered as it is, like what goes into it, you know, pushing, you know, pushing the volumes of this, hitting that tape sounds exactly the same. I mean, it, to me, it sounds like what it would sound like if I recorded on my, on my digital stuff over here. You know? Cause I don't record on computers. Um, I have like a Fostex D160, which is a 16 track digital recorder. So it's a hard drive recorder, but it's not a computer. It's technically supposed to be fail proof, you know, knock on wood. But to me, like I can do the very same thing on, on all this stuff. And it just comes out sounding like, I mean, it sounds like subclinic and it sounds like all the releases that I've done have been recorded on the digital shit, you know, so it sounds, it sounds great, but this newer stuff recorded on this just sounds huge. I mean, it sounds like, it sounds like the Reaper with a fucking jackhammer. Wild. Beautiful. (laughs) Is there any piece of gear that has stayed with you since the beginning? No, nah, just my mind. That's about it. Haven't uh <laughs> that's, that's, you know what? Yeah, that's, that's, that's perfect. perfect. <laughs> and it's slowly going away too, so no, that's great. Um no, I've 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 had so much shit over the over the years. Like I don't I don't know. It, it's all like to me the tools are irrelevant if, if my mind can't make me pull it out of it, you know. So like the tools help me get it out, but if it's not there then I don't really need it. Like I go through guitars more than I've like two months ago, got this Gibson Les Paul over here. I was like, ah, it's the best guitar I've ever had. I can love it. I'm going to keep it forever. I'm selling it today. You know? So it's kind of like <laughs> one of those things, you know, it's, it's like, I don't, I don't need it anymore. So <laughs> awesome. Like well, we are going to discuss a little more gear over on the extra noise, extra on the Patreon. But as we wind down this regular episode we certainly want to make sure to send everyone to the subclinic band camp so that you can hear and pick up a lot of the discography it's not every single thing but it's pretty full and of Actually, course and always... i saw that you uh reissued on Bandcamp, i believe uh the your material from the abominari set mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. Yeah, the Black Communion stuff. Yeah. One of my favorite sets, the a triple CDR that came out back in the what, late 90s or early 2000s on AVA ES1, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, great, great material there. So. Oh, cool. I, Thanks a lot. Highest right. recommendation for that. And uh, Neuroschism, you heard it in my recent listening yeah. a while back. Uh, uh, total modern favorite. I, I fell in love with that one as soon as I heard it and have listened to it uh, numerous times. And oh, yeah. that, actually, when I was dealing with uh, some death in my own family, that was uh, that was along for the ride. So, yeah, very Thank very so appreciated. Uh, all your work and this period of activity has been uh, really nice to witness and get to listen to. Oh yeah, yeah, I, I appreciate uh, I appreciate all the words. It's uh, it's it's really cool. Like, you know, not really knowing what it would even you know come of this project many many years ago. Um, you know, and there's been times where, uh, you know, the, the kind of like the quiet of like not really putting out a whole lot of stuff was kind of like, you know, I always question like if projects have run their course, um, you know, sometimes I feel like our 13 has already run its course because like the modern day doom scene, I just can't fucking stand. Like, it's like, it's become nothing more to me than like fucking pop music. Like, you know, I'm glad that, you know, I'm, I'm glad that, you know, that's, it's, it's kind of become more of like a mainstream than some other metal stuff. Um, but at the same time, it's just kind of like, I don't know. I just fucking hate it sometimes, you know, and that's kind of how I've gotten with, with, uh, you know, with my own, you know, my own struggles with the mental shit, you know, it's like, sometimes I go through phases of like, just thinking like, well, this doesn't really even matter to me, but then whenever I realize that it matters to other people, that's another thing that really keeps subclinic going because I kind of feel like, you know, I might not be able to, you know, connect with people on a personal level, but, you know, no matter whether like people are into experimental music or not, generally when they hear subclinic, they're just like fucking that's heavy. Like that's, you know, where does this come from? You know? So it's like connecting on like a, like a, like a not really spiritual level but just on like a like a like an energy level you know what i mean if that makes any sense absolutely does and the energy has been filling our place all week leading up to this 
And it's going to continue, of course, as Gray noted, October being the best month of the year. We like to theme all the episodes around the October, around October rust, you know? Mm -hmm. So we got some great stuff coming up uh, this month, some stuff planned, of course, our annual Halloween A-Tracks episode. But we're excited that Subclinic was our first October episode this year. So thank you so much, Chad. This was awesome. And I'm I'm extremely grateful to all you guys. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Well, we're going to head over to the Patreon and we're going to talk a little more gear. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Noise Extra. Noise Extra is brought to you by Chondritic Sound, a home to noise artists for over 17 years. By Verdant Weapons, maker of quality contact microphones and noise devices, and by our Patreon supporters. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash noise extra, and your support really helps. You can find us on Instagram at noise extra, on the web at noiseextra.com, one E in those, and on Twitter at noise extra, with three A's at the end. Thank you for listening to us and to noise. <laughs>